0: ReachMD XM One Hundred and Sixty now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Doctors Matt Bernholz and Michael Greenberg.
1: Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM One Hundred and Sixty the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And
2: I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. This is, of course, a live show. It is our best show ever, so keep listening. And we welcome you to join in the conversation, participate with your comments and questions. Email us at sol at reachmd.com. You can also tweet us or give us a shout on our Facebook page. And, of course, you can talk to us by phone at 888-MD-1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322, but not while you're driving.
1: But not while you're driving. And today... We'll be bringing you Michael's interview with Dr. Rebecca Tomley. Great interview. Dr. Tomley is a practicing clinical psychologist who heads the nonprofit organization Headwaters, a disaster relief volunteer service founded after Hurricane Katrina that addresses mental health and housing rehabilitation needs of disaster victims. Michael spoke to Dr. Tomley recently by phone when she was in New Orleans for the fifth anniversary of Katrina. They talked about the mental health problems people are still dealing with there five years later. And we'll bring you that interview a little later in the show. But before we get to that, we'll
2: take a look at some of the stranger headlines from the world of medicine, from news that wine drinkers are going to have no problem comprehending to a county fair with a kind of unusual offering, a DNA booth. No, listeners, it's not fried DNA on a stick, so stay tuned. We'll explain, and we'll also cover the latest news in the debate over end-of-life care.
1: But we're nowhere near the end of this show's life, huh? Yeah? (laughs) Did you like that? (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Because we're just getting started on this week's episode of Second Opinion You are so cute, man. I am the cutest. And let's move in on some curious headlines first. And here's a good one. Moderate wine drinking... Does it sharpen the brain? Absolutely. Absolutely. You may have seen this reported in the last week or so on TV or in the popular press. The claim is that people who drink a moderate amount of wine have better cognitive function outcomes compared to people who don't drink at all. And that goes especially for women.
2: So now we got to credit the Norwegians for this. They are awesome. Researchers (laughs) in Norway followed over 5,000 men and women averaging 58 years of age for seven years and tracked their cognitive function with a range of tests. And those who drank at least two glasses of wine a week had lower risk of poor cognitive function after seven years than people who drank less than one glass of wine a week. How do I get into one of these studies?
1: (laughs) I'm pretty sure you've always been in one of those studies.
2: Women in particular were more likely to test well if they consumed wine at least twice a week compared to women who didn't drink wine at all. Women out there, start drinking.
1: What's really interesting to me is that they still held up after adjusting for age, education, weight, depression, and cardiovascular disease. I mean, every single one of those was like answering a question of mine. I was like, well, what about cardiovascular disease? What about age. And, but what they did acknowledge, these researchers, is that they did not adjust for other lifestyle factors such as diet, profession, and income level. I mean, this is an observational study, so they couldn't easily do that. And it is possible that the results are based on some moderate people doing moderate things pattern.
2: So on higher income levels, you drink better wine and you live longer?
1: I think it's safe to put that out there. Right. Right?
2: But listen, this is not just a throwaway claim. In the last 30 years, there's over 60 studies that have looked at the association between moderate alcohol intake and cognitive function. Many Many have shown links between light and moderate alcohol consumption and better cognitive function, plus reduced risk of dementia. It's been suggested over and over again that the benefit might be due to antioxidants
1: in wine. Which ties into the whole more expensive wine, more antioxidants, maybe. More tannins, who knows? I don't know. I believe that. What's interesting is that this is the latest of a long line of investigations into the possible health benefits of moderate wine consumption ever since the so-called... French paradox, which I think you know all about since you're in France, what, six months of the year. It was pointed out that the French eat ungodly amounts of butter. They smoke, they don't exercise much, and they've still got us beat hands down on cardiovascular disease rates. So, I mean, it's always moderate but steady wine drinking that sticks out here.
2: All right. Sip your Bordeaux we'll move on to the next weird headline <laughs> in medicine. If you're anywhere near St. Paul, Minnesota this weekend, you might want to pop over to the state fair. They've got the usual livestock exhibits. There's a butter sculpture, funnel cakes, probably a wine booth and every possible food and non-food fried and served on a stick. But one booth that's made the news for both popularity and controversy is the University of Minnesota's research booth, where you can take the kids to get some free ride tickets in exchange for donating a little spit, a few nail clippings, and maybe even some blood
1: for a growing DNA bank. Just that. Well, that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> spit in the cup and get your ticket. Yeah, just a little blood. So the University of Minnesota is conducting what they've called the Gopher Kids Project with the aim of mapping out the genetics of healthy children and thereby hopefully identifying targeted genes behind childhood diseases. The researchers' goal is to sign up 500 kids by Labor Day and ultimately thousands of kids for the study. I hear that they got 200 in the first day of having this booth out there. They want to find out whether the state fair is an effective venue for recruiting, which clearly they did. But the participants are given 10 free rides, a backpack, and free tickets to the fair for the next two years, which is convenient since they'll be expected to return for follow-up screenings great incentive. Do they get a corn dog too? They get several corn dogs. And ideally, the researchers wouldn't collect saliva samples from subjects who've eaten without a half hour. But at the state fair, obviously, they'll have to take what they can get. So you can expect some chicken and hot dog DNA to turn up on these tests.
2: Wow. This is, this is a really interesting story because critics argue that people are not in the right mindset when they're having fun at the fair. I would think so. They're not in the right mindset. They had a few beers or walking on, hey, honey, let's spit in the cup and leave some DNA here. So they, they really should properly weigh whether their privacy is at risk or, or whether they're truly consenting in full. And in a Wall Street Journal article entitled, What Should You Ask Before You Give Up DNA?, the associate director of the California-based Center for Genetics and Society pointed out that even though samples can be destroyed per request, the data can live on. Subjects should ask, who's going to have access to this stuff? And how is it going to be stored and analyzed? Would you walk into a booth and give them your DNA
1: Uh, well, it would probably take far fewer incentives than what they gave these kids to get me to do it. (laughs) I'm going to be completely honest. If they threw a corn dog in my face, I would give them probably a pint of my blood.
2: I'm watching too many TV detective shows because it's always that DNA that gets you. They're not going to get my DNA. (laughs) No, thank you. And not at the state fair. Anyway, I agree. I I think that if you're going to do a research project like that, it's got to be much more serious. You don't trade ride tickets. For mm-hmm. a spit.
1: So do you know? think it creates a, an ethical conflict in the way that they're trying to present this?
2: I do in a way. I really think it does. It gets people at a, at a fun time and it makes it something lighthearted and ha we'll collect your DNA here mm-hmm. while you're here. You know, come in and like hit the thing and ring the bell and win a, a prize. It, it's not very serious. and It's not very medical. I don't think it should be done at the state fair like that. On the other hand, it's pretty clever the way they're collecting. It, if you think about it, you got a lot of people together and-
1: I have to give them props for that. And if they were to claim that it's going to be an anonymous registry- I think that would soothe some of the ethicist concerns here, don't you think?
2: Probably. But guess what? They're not getting my DNA. I don't care how many corn dogs they give me. I I don't care if they give me Miss Minnesota. All right. Now it's time to welcome our guest, Dr. Rebecca Tomley. Dr. Tomley is a practicing clinical psychologist in Minneapolis and president and CEO of Orion Associates, a foundation serving the elderly and people with disabilities. She was in New Orleans with the Red Cross immediately after Hurricane Katrina and now heads the nonprofit organization Headwaters, which runs the River of Hope Mental Health Resource Center in New Orleans' 9th Ward. The five year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina just passed, and I spoke to Dr. Tomley recently by phone when she was. Was in New Orleans observing that anniversary. Mental health issues persist there as people continue to sort out what happened to them and try to rebuild their lives. She talked to me about what she saw in New Orleans immediately after the hurricane and the mental health situation there now, five years later. Here's our conversation. Rebecca, welcome to Reach MD. Thank you. All right. Why don't you start by telling our listeners about your background in disaster response and trauma? You've worked with the Red Cross for many years, so give us a little background of who you are.
0: Well, I'm a clinical psychologist. I see patients back in Minneapolis. I specialize in several areas, but I have specialized in trauma response. I see people in my office back home who may have experienced trauma in some way or another, a car accident, a shooting, a dog bite, very varied. But my trauma work initially really started through my work with the Red Cross and disaster response.
2: You went to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. How did you end up there?
0: I went with the Red Cross as a mental health worker and ended up being assigned to several areas. But ultimately, my longest assignment was to the lower Ninth Ward and the upper Ninth Ward area of New Orleans, which was one of the areas that was, you know, hit very hard. Working with families as they were coming back to see their homes for the first time.
2: When did you get there after the hurricane? How long?
0: Mental health goes in later for some of the direct response, but we're coming in at the end of September, beginning of October.
2: Okay, and what did you find when you got there? What was it like?
0: For me, it was unlike any disaster I had ever been assigned to before, and I had been out on many disasters in my time with the Red Cross. The level of devastation was unbelievable, very difficult to see. But I think the thing that stuck with me the most, or what was the most different, is that you could see that the services coming in would not begin to meet the needs of the people here,
2: can you be more definite about that like were we were talking about physical services or the mental services that you were looking at?
0: you know at the point you're coming in with the Red Cross, you're still doing basic need service, whether it 's you know providing mental health while you're on a Red Cross truck delivering meals or you're providing mental health support. When people are trying to find shelter, uh, the Red Cross has mental health workers in all the shelters, but you could see that the amount of services in terms of even people getting those basic needs met was not happening. The area I was working in, we were still going door to door trying to make sure that people who had either come back to their home were having food and water, or there were people there that still had stayed in their homes, and there were people there that were looking for family members that were deceased or never made it out.
2: Now, I know this was probably, or was it, I'm assuming this was probably the largest disaster you've ever been at?
0: It would have been the largest. I mean, I worked with September 11th, that disaster, but this was certainly um, in Oklahoma City. I mean, I guess largest in terms of number of people affected, I guess, directly, yes.
2: How was it different from the, besides the, from the other disasters, or was it for you?
0: It was different, and some of that has to do with the role you play, because I was primarily on the ground doing direct service with people, and sometimes when you go out with mental health, you might be just doing individual work with people who are requesting mental health service, but in this situation, everybody needed support. Everybody was struggling with getting their basic needs met, finding family members, knowing where to go for support, trying to call the numbers that were given to them for the support that didn't really work because either they were jammed with the number of calls coming in or they tell you to call another number. I remember sitting down with one person, and and she was so distressed that I said, well, here, I'll make the calls for you. Well, it took nine additional numbers to get to one number that still couldn't support her in the services she was looking for. You know, when you're you've been traumatized, and you've lost your home and all your belongings, and you don't know where your family members are, and sometimes nine phone calls might be more than you can do.
2: What mental health services in general do people need immediately after a disaster? What do we need to provide to them?
0: Well, immediately after a disaster, people really need support. It isn't clinical therapy, like someone comes in your office and sits down and talks to you about your problems. Often you serve as a presence. You serve as a witness standing next to them by their side, providing the emotional support they need as they deal with the issues they're confronting with. People are in shock. People are trying to sort out what has exactly happened in their life, what's happened to them, and, and just having someone sit and listen as they express you know, their anxiety, their emotions. That's really what mental health is about at that point. You're not doing traditional clinical therapy.
2: That's interesting. It's actually what any healthcare worker should be doing it with any trauma, even learning a bad diagnosis. We need to be present for people in that moment. And that's the most important thing. Exactly. Okay. Rebecca, does there tend to be a progression of the mental health issues that people typically deal with during the months and even years after disaster from that first moment of shock when you just need to be a witness? What goes on next?
0: Yes, I think there is a progression, and I've been fortunate enough to work down here and be able to work with people through that process. You certainly have the shock and the dismay and the reaction to what has happened to me. And there's a period, too, following that time, and we certainly saw with some of the families trying to hope for things to get better or hope for support to come in. And, And often during that time, and I would still categorize this part of the shock period, when services don't come in, people really do transition to a period of anger and frustration in terms of trying to figure out what they're going to do or make new changes in their life or reach for services or help. And then often you see a depression that follows. Now the reality has really set in. We're dealing with the loss of everything we knew before. Our life is going to be permanently changed And many people struggle with depression at that point. A phase that comes for people following that is the phase of, you know, and we talk about those that respond to this real well, is a phase where people begin to make changes and build for a future. To move into that adaptation phase or a coping phase, people typically needed to have some resilience in the first place. People who have more resilience tend to have some characteristics or support systems around them that help them make those adaptations. But there are also people, too, that are not able to cope and adjust. And those are the people, it's not everybody who is affected by the hurricane, it's actually a smaller percentage of people, but those are the people who truly end up suffering from more longer-term disorders such as post-traumatic stress disorder.
2: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMDXM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Greenberg, and my guest is Dr. Rebecca Tomley, practicing clinical psychologist and CEO of Headwaters Relief Organization, a nonprofit that operates the River of Hope Mental Health Resource Center in the New Orleans Ninth Ward. We're talking about delivering mental health services well after a disaster is over. Tell our, our listeners, please, about the Headwaters Relief Organization and how that organization got started and got involved in New Orleans.
0: Well, New Orleans really is what started Headwaters Relief Organization. I came down with the Red Cross. I could see that services weren 't coming in. obviously, people are pretty familiar with all the issues on the news about you know who didn 't provide what support or what from a governmental standpoint relief services weren 't here. But it it was apparent that services weren't coming in. And I I went back to Minnesota and had actually met a pastor in the Ninth Ward area I was working with. And, And I could see that this is a very poor area. It is primarily an area of African Americans. And it was one of the hardest hit areas. And I could see that services weren't coming in. I went back and I tried to organize in terms of church and community. And ultimately what happened is, our organization, or Ryan Associates, said we'll send, you know, staff to go down and work. And we, we started out then that Thanksgiving after the hurricane with about 35 employees who came down to work thinking we're going to be helping cleaning up and quickly moving on to learning that in order to bringing in semi-trucks of supplies for this community, we would be getting homes. It wasn't really, you we know, kind of brought our buckets and our mops and ended up needing to have, you know, sledgehammers and crowbars. What's really happened since that time is a very much a grassroots movement. Those people were so motivated by this experience and so concerned for the people in that community that family and friends joined in. And we went on to bring, we're now over somewhere close to 600 volunteers that have come in working with us. And we started with gutting homes and moving in as construction people joined us to rebuilding homes for some elderly individuals, to some community support centers, a daycare center, a shelter for battered women, some of the church facilities in the community, because this church was really the cornerstone. And along the way, our background is mental health and it is social services. We also opened up the free mental health service. So again it's very grassroots. The organization is a nonprofit and any funds people have given house goes directly to services there, but it is an organization made up of regular folks that have chosen to volunteer and give their time to this community. We have volunteers from about eight different states now and actually we have even had volunteers as far away as from Germany.
2: Can you give us a website address in case any of our listeners want to help or get involved?
0: Yeah, certainly they can look us up at headwatersrelief.org. I think what's unique about our nonprofit is that anything that's donated goes directly to service in that Orion Associates donates all the administrative and the management. So there isn't any amount of funds that are donated that go to anything other than directly to people. And that's been true in that Headwaters has now, we end up working at disasters locally. So while we've maintained our presence in New Orleans for the last five years, we've also served in disasters in Minnesota in Iowa and North Dakota and now in Haiti as well.
2: Can you tell us about the River of Hope Walk-In Mental Health Resource Center? How did it get started and when?
0: Well, it got started about a year and a half, so after the hurricane. So it's been in operation about three and a half years now. Actually, one of the first buildings we got it, it's a church building, by New Salem Baptist Church in the Upper Ninth Ward. And we started it because, as we talked earlier about the phases people went through, as people were really looking at the reality of what their life was going to be like now, the mental health, significant mental health issues began to emerge. We had the capacity in that we are a social service agency, we have psychologists, we have social workers, we have mental health support available. In early on, a lot of the work we did We think of it as triage work. Often people were suffering or having difficulties, but it had to do with access to service. So our staff could come in, be emotionally in great shape, hopefully if they're coming here, and sometimes just sitting down with a person and helping them figure out, you know, where can I go now that my drugstore doesn't exist anymore and how can I get my medications when all my records are gone or where can I go to a food shelf or where can I get clothing a lot of the services that we were doing initially. Now we're doing more traditional clinical work in the sense that we're dealing with people who have struggled with serious issues such as, you know, I use this person as an example of the level of trauma. A man we've been seeing for several years who in the hurricane was trying to get out of that area carrying his granddaughter was not able to hold on to her in the flood waters or a woman who successfully got to the Dome, only to find out that her brother, when he couldn't find her at the Dome, had gone back to that area to try to get her out and had drowned. Those type of issues are what people are dealing with at this time, and that's the kind of issue we're currently serving.
2: Are there any specific issues that come up around the anniversary of a disaster? Does it get worse for people as that date pulls around?
0: That's a really good question, Michael, because... People come down and they think about, well, it's the anniversary, it's going to be marked in special ways. And often in the churches it is, but often people here feel a need to be more private about their grief. This was not an anniversary date, certainly in the sense of a marriage or a funeral It's more in the sense of a funeral, more in the sense of loss. And often what you have with this anniversary date is people reliving some of the trauma of that experience. So it's a time where we have a larger mental health presence here. You know, We tend to do more events that are supportive during that time because people are going to have more difficulties.
2: Well, we'd like to help. Give us your website again.
0: It's headwatersrelief.org.
2: Thank you. I've been talking with Dr. Rebecca Tomley about first mental health responders following a disaster and the mental health service center she's developed in New Orleans, the River of Hope Mental Health Resource Center in the Ninth Ward. Rebecca, thank you for being a guest on ReachMD.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: That was my interview with Dr. Rebecca Tomley, practicing clinical psychologist in Minneapolis and CEO of a foundation called Orion Associates and the nonprofit organization Headwaters, which runs the River of Hope Mental Health Resource Center in New Orleans' Ninth Ward. Our conversation marked the five-year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Again, for more information about the work she's doing in New Orleans, you can go online to headwatersrelief.org. That is two Minnesota stories today. I hope our listeners from Minnesota send us cookies or something because we're targeting that At well, the state. very
1: least, and hopefully deep fried.
2: Serious yeah. story. I, mean, I don't want to make fun of it, but imagine what that's still going on. I mean, we, we talked about Haiti here. Absolutely. We need to remind ourselves about New Orleans. There are still many, many issues there that need to be handled, yeah. especially these mental health issues. Imagine losing your life, losing relatives, losing your house, and five years later, you're still suffering.
1: Yeah, And I think that's something that's sorely missed in terms of our attention from the media. We think of relief. We think of recovery. We don't think of rehabilitation. And that extends for years beyond the actual disaster itself.
2: Right. I mean, they're still rebuilding homes back there, but they're still rebuilding people. And it's so difficult to comprehend what that must do to you to have your entire life wiped out by a natural disaster. And there are things we can do to help. We can become part of this organization, send the money. As she said, every dollar goes
1: to them. She's a remarkable individual for somebody who's such a great activist and somebody that you're not going to hear of on the front page. She's doing it very quietly and she's doing a hell of a lot right now
2: and she's brilliant she has more degrees than you can i can comprehend i looked at her bio she has like twenty
1: four thousand <laughs> masters and phd degrees well perfect timing for us to move in to our reach md forum but first a quick pop quiz that just floated by our desk and i have to apologize in advance because it's a little bit sobering the latest numbers are out on medical liability lawsuits based on a study from the AMA. What would you say is the percentage of doctors who've been sued by the age of 55? And, Michael, I'm going to exempt you from that because I'm currently suing you right now. Thank you. Is it 20%? Is it 40%? Or is it 60%? The answer, drumroll, is 61% of doctors. That awful stat comes from an AMA survey on practice costs that tallied almost 6,000 respondents. General surgeons and OBGYNs were most likely to be sued, no surprise there, while pediatricians and psychiatrists were least likely, again, no surprise. The only silver lining here, yes, most of these suits were dropped, dismissed, or withdrawn, but (laughs) that is a cold comfort at best, so we might want to just call this a bronze lining for a better analogy, or any worthless metal, really, just call that that the lining here, is what I would say.
2: Yeah, it's a high number.
1: (laughs) Very high number. And yes, I have been sued. I am
2: 61 years old, and I have been sued. And... Unfortunately, was dropped. All right, now that's kind of depressing, Matt. Thank you very much for that story. You made me go back and relive all those horrible moments. Very sorry. So let's talk about something positive for a change and turn to the ReachMD Forum. Today, we're discussing a study published in the August 18th edition of the New England Journal of Medicine, which is stirring up a lot of controversy about end-of-life care. The article looks at providing palliative care in the early stages of terminal lung cancer in addition to providing traditional treatment. And the authors found that palliative care, when introduced early, not only led to significant improvements in quality of life, which we would expect, but also extended patients' lives by an average of three months. This was a three-year randomized control trial with 151 patients who were recently diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer. Half the patients underwent standard cancer treatments, while the rest got those standard treatments, plus early access to palliative care. And patients who were assigned to early palliative care reported being happier, more mobile, less depressed, and in less pain than their standard therapy counterparts. And despite the fact that A, far fewer of the palliative care patients opted for aggressive chemo as their condition worsened, and B, far more of them signed DNR waivers. The median survival was still longer in the palliative care
1: group by three months. Just think about that. I mean, just those two factors alone, far fewer of them opted for aggressive chemo as their condition worsened, and far more of them signing DNR waivers, and yet their survival, their median survival is so much more significant. And take in mind that the average life expectancy for someone with metastatic lung cancer is fewer than 12 months. So that median survival difference, that's profound.
2: Right. Well, maybe if you're happy and being cared for, it, it helps you live longer. Maybe that's that's part of the equation we need to look at.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the authors make a very strong case here that contrary to popular opinion, Standard treatment and palliative care are by no means mutually exclusive, which seems kind of intuitive to most people, but in practice is highly counterintuitive. And in fact, this is one of the first studies looking at palliative care initiated at the time of diagnosis rather than the last week of life. And it seems to be a great option on all counts.
2: Well, we all know the controversy came from proponents of palliative care saying that in addition to preserving quality of life, it also saves resources, Mm -hmm. which is is true money. And factoring cost into the equation got critics rallying around ulterior motives, hence the death panel accusations we had during that big debate on health care reform. But it's nice to see a study come out that can lead to the same cost-saving conclusion while arguing that palliative care is really the opposite of death panels. It's all about better quality of life and maybe even longer life. As I read this and prepared for the story, I was amazed that we didn't offer palliative care to everybody at that point in life. Why not make them happier? Why not talk to them about pain control? Who are we treating here? Are we treating the cancer are we treating people? And if you treat people, you just don't give chemotherapy. You also treat all the other symptoms, side effects, and problems that are involved in palliative care. Yeah.
1: And it's well known that there's often been a misconception that the employment of palliative care, just the mere offering of palliative care, would be done to the exclusion of other options of care, standard of care, looking at surgery. And that's not true at all. I mean, most palliative care specialists have to overcome that assumption over and over and over again, in which people think that they're not offering the same services in terms of options for surgery, for very aggressive chemo treatment, but they are offering those things. They're just also evaluating what is the limit for you? What is your quality of life that you want to establish at this time?
2: Well, because I think a lot of physicians and patients too think when you get to palliative care, you're giving up. You're not giving up Absolutely. It means you're adding to it. And I think that it's really, really important that we participate in this and insurance companies pay for this. If we're really treating people, we need to treat all of them. It's not hospice care. The point is
1: so simple. I mean, it's elementary, but it seems impossible for many people on the insurance and legislative end to figure that out. And it makes me so angry when I think of death panels as an accusation emerging just because the medical people tried to get this passed through legislation to get this service insured. I mean, I find that so ridiculous that the accusation of death panels would emerge from that.
2: Well, we're always going to have those type of people around who don't understand it.
1: Well... I think that is going to, on a very silver lining note, I think that is going to wrap it up for us today on today's show. I am so sorry to our audience for putting out there the stat on the 61% of lawsuits, but it had to be done. And I think we're going to have to sit one of them death panels on malpractice lawyers just to get even and see what happens. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz.
2: And don't forget New Orleans and Haiti and Pakistan. And keep drinking your wine like we do all during this show. Thanks to Tony and Paula in the control room. For more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, be sure to visit our website on reachmd.com SOL. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and thank you for joining us. Keep your radio dialed into reach ReachMD XM160.